training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Hey, everybody. This is Matt Pendola with the Pendola Project. And I am producer Jake Parker, and we just had an excellent conversation, Matt. We basically, you just gave me an hour's worth of advice. This was a great show, man. And I have all these new ideas, things that I can try in the gym, outside of the gym, nutritionally. Thanks for the advice, man. So we're talking today about fat loss principles. And specifically, I used James Linker, Shredded Sports Science. This guy kind of goes down the rabbit hole a little bit, but he's actually very funny. You can look him up on YouTube. But he wrote the five principles that we want to keep in mind. So one is caloric deficit. Two is adequate protein. Three is adherence to eating plan. Four is resistance training. Five is further exercise for deficit. So what we wanted to do with these principles is talk about how we can effectively use them for the long term. How to lose fat. We have some answers. You have to find your best way, what works for you. But we hope that giving you some guidelines and some examples on how to approach these principles, you'll be able to now reach your goal, not just short term, but long term. And these principles really taught me something because I'm typically trying to lose fat and gain muscle like I think a lot of people are. And specifically principles four and five, I had a couple of misconceptions about my training program. Yeah, Jake, guess what? We've all been wrong. We all have to learn the hard way. At some point, we realize there's a better way. So I've made my mistakes too. And the important thing is that we take what we know now and we can do better. We are pretty passionate about helping other people achieve their goals, this is done with a good energy system development plan. And that has to be consistent. That has to be something that we can do in the long term. So let's listen in on how we can make use of this information to better our lives. Matt, welcome back. You have been around, I want to say, the entire world, man. Where have you been? Yeah, so I've been traveling the last couple of weeks. I guess I should start with my family first. We went glamping, Jake. Glamorous camping. That means what? You had a big RV and a microwave. Did you have a TV? We had a tent, but it's one of those safari tents that is as big as a room. It had two beds in it. It's not exactly roughing it. Our daughter, Mia, she wanted to go camping. I'll tell you, I spent good five years sleeping on the ground, hot shotting, wildland fire, all that stuff. And I'm not going to sleep on the ground anymore. I know. I remember I asked you if you wanted to go camping once and you're like, I don't ever want to go sleep in a tent again. No, no, I've had enough of it. But of course I do anything for Mia. So we compromised with our glamping trip. We had a great time, man. Probably favorite memory was our very last night. We got some salmon. I grilled up salmon and some vegetables and we had some s'mores. Nice. That was a lot of fun. And so that was in Santa Barbara. Well done, man. And then that was the second half of your trip. What about the first half? You went to Colorado, Denver, right? Close enough. Bobby McGee, the world's greatest running coach, in my opinion. But I think his name would have to be in the conversation in the top three just about by any runner who knows running. And I think there's a particular word that starts with an O associated with Bobby. Well, he was the head Olympic triathlon coach, but he specializes as a running coach. So our triathlon team, we were not great off of the bike. We would get swallowed up off the bike. So they recruited Bobby specifically for his coaching abilities for running. And, well, we had Gwen Jurgensen win the Olympic gold medal in Rio last time. So our first Olympic gold medal. And Bobby, of course, was the coach. So I've been able to work with Bobby for the last five years or so. And I've been a strength and conditioning coach for his camps. 
but we have become fast friends and we are collaborating on some projects together. So I went there to go over, man, a lot of material. I was fortunate enough to be around him and some of his athletes. He still had to work at times. He lightened up his schedule for me, but he still had to work a bit. And I was more than happy to assist him and can't really talk too much about the athletes in his stable, but I would say that you are talking about some of the world's best athletes, world champions, and I get to be a part of that. So what an honor. Sounds like a Toys R Us for you, man. <laughs> yeah, man. It was fun. Bobby is going to be here in Reno in December, and we are going to put on a class, a seminar, their series, kind of like a camp, a three-day camp really for our athletes there. And he's also going to come on to the podcast while he's here. So you guys are going to be able to listen to Bobby. I'll tell you, even if you're not a running fan, this guy wrote a book called Magical Running. He's the most empathetic coach and person that I think I've ever met. And I'm just inspired by him. He's a truly good person who happens to have a huge passion for helping people get better. This happens to be in running, but you can take these lessons and you can use them for anything really in life. I've learned so much from Bobby. It was an amazing trip and I'm fired up. I can't wait to be able to put these programs together to help people. So we're going to focus first on getting people to understand how they can get into running programs safely, effectively, and build their way up into running. Even if it's just going to say run for health, run for a mile, run for fun, these programs are going to help. Oh man, that sounds amazing. I can't wait to hear from Bobby and I know that the listener is going to get quite a lot. If you make it to that level and the way that you talk about Bobby McGee, I just, you have to be good. You do. And he's got no ego, man. I am so in awe of how Bobby operates. I'll just give you a quick example. I was mentioning to him that I ran for the Army or that I ran for this coach, John Purnell, right? I ran for this. But Bobby said, no, you didn't. You didn't run for him. And I said, no, I, I did. But he said, no, but you didn't run for him. You run for you. And that's one of the lessons that as a coach myself, I have to really take that to heart. How many times do I mistakenly say that somebody runs for me? And so it's just in our language. So he's such a master of these nuances that really make a difference in how our athletes think about themselves. And I just have to just keep striving to be better more empathetic, to be wiser in that sense of really serving others. Well, that's kind of what we're doing here, right, Matt? We are trying to spread the word. Yeah, man. We didn't write the book. We did the podcast. All right. What, what were you up to, Jake? Well, Matt, while you were away saving the world, I was in Florida on vacation. I went to Orlando, and then I had a few days in Tampa, had never been to that part of the world, could never live there. It's way too hot and humid. I was filthy, sweaty, stinky, wasn't used to it at all. I I missed the mountains. Everything's flat, but beautiful part of the country for a quick visit for me. And then I came back, got back to the gym. And I got to tell you, man, I am sore because I was way out of my league in a particular class that I went to over the weekend. And it just, it just kicked my butt, man. Yeah. Do you feel pressured to be able to do everything that they're asking you to do in this class. Mm -hmm. I know sometimes they're going to tell you that you can do less or you can do a regression, but what I notice is there's sort of that group effect. It can be a great thing that you have the group that you're working with to push you, but sometimes you're being pushed further than what you're ready for. So that's almost peer pressure kind of thing, yeah. isn't it? I'm susceptible to it. I absolutely fall into that. And well, my ego says, no, I can't do less. I have to do either as much or more than everyone else is going to expect of themselves. Well, yeah, we have to put our egos in check. But then, of course, sometimes we just don't realize what might be too much until it's too late, right? Yeah. And I just think that knowing when you can do more, but with what? Yeah. So we're going to talk about that today. We want to give you some principles that you can use so you can structure your training a little bit better. So I refer to this as energy system development, Jake. ESD. I remember that acronym. 
uh, when I was mentoring at the Athletes Performance Institute, this is sort of their acronym, the terminology they use for essentially developing the proper training progressions for athletes. And again, if you are somebody who functions, you are an athlete, so me? functioning, you right? Me too? <laughs> That's become a sort of a pet peeve of mine. People think that they're not athletes. And I've said this many, many times, but if you are that baseball player, sure, that's obvious you're an athlete. Now you talk about grandma who's walking to the store and has to step down the curb. She's doing something that's athletic. It's just the defining term that we have to understand. We're all athletes in my mind, though. So we're talking about functioning, functioning well. And so all these principles that we use for athletic training, I believe that course, it might be curtailed or it should be curtailed, I should say, for the individual, but we're all athletes. Okay. And so it's your plan as an athlete, whatever that means to you, your energy system development is your plan to meet your goals. And I will share with you my goals right now, Matt. And I'll be honest, I've struggled with this for a few months now. I have the goal that most middle-aged dudes have. I don't even know if I'm middle-aged yet, but let's say I am. I want to build muscle while losing fat. I've got maybe five to 10 pounds of fat that I want to lose while overall I would be okay with being maybe five pounds heavier in total that I am now. Yeah. Let's attack that. First of all, how do you know it's five pounds? Because I'm eyeballing it. Right. So that's a great thing you just brought up organically. Five pounds I hear this a lot. There's an X amount of pounds that I need to lose. Mm -hmm. Why? What is that going to get you to? What does that mean? If you end up having better toned muscle, if you end up putting on, in other words, more muscle, and yes, you've shed fat, but the scale has not changed at all. Are you going to be happy with that? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yes. So we need to kind of get off the scale, so to speak, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there are times when we know we do need to lose some weight. Mm -hmm. And of course, that can be very common that we are going to see that weight loss. But I don't like numbers. I like goals to have a plan based around, again, your energy system development. So if you're feeling better you're going to move more. If you're moving more, you're probably going to pay more attention to your nutrition, for example. So I think that a key factor in this is just how we talk about it. So let's go over some principles here. So we're just talking about fat loss. There's a sports scientist, his name is James Linker. He's come up with the top five fat loss principles. So number one, is a caloric deficit. Which means eating fewer calories than you burn. Essentially, yes, right? Okay. And then you have adequate protein. That's number two. Adequate protein is very misunderstood. So we have bodybuilders who might take in two grams of protein per pound of body weight. That's a lot. That's a lot. Okay, yeah. Okay, yet you'd be amazed at how many people will follow what they're doing, even though that's extreme and there's no real science to prove that that excess protein is doing anything additional for them. Yeah, I can't imagine that would. That's, that's over 300 grams for me. Right. Okay. Or to steal a term from James Linker, they might be on the juicy vitamins. Ah, I like that one. I get it. And that's important to recognize because I know that people listening, you're probably not on juicy vitamins, but you need to understand that sometimes things that you are being influenced by are coming from people on juicy vitamins. For those of you uh, at home, he means steroids. Right. So so we might have, let's say, 0.6 grams per pound of body weight that works really well for us. Other people that are maybe doing a little bit more and stressing their body a little bit more, they might need more than that. They might need, say, 
a gram. 1.2 grams, I'll even go to that. But science tells us that basically we are looking at somewhere between 0.6 grams and 1.2 grams. That's where it can be confusing because not everybody has the same goals. They're not all creating the same stress and they don't all have the same recovery. So we have to understand what adequate protein means to us. We talked about in a previous episode, Jake, how we can start to maybe adjust our eating patterns, how we can start to find what works for us according to our current programming and plans. Yep. And that episode is Monday Motivation, Think and Lose Weight. Nice. So yeah, review that one. It can give you a little bit more insight into what we're talking about here, but we're going to go to principle number three, which is adherence to eating plans. Now, that's a tough one, or it can be tough. Adherence to eating plans, Jake. How inherent are we to our plan? Well, again, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but I do believe to have mental flexibility in your nutrition plan, you need to first document, you need to first know what is your set point, and then you can start to go from there and make some adjustments, especially after you've now put in a few weeks of documenting then you have maybe a few months where you're starting to really know you and what those adjustments need to be more specifically. So I know a lot of people just want to hear, well, just give me the answer. But the answer is within you. There is no the answer. It's all subjective. It's all very personal and relative. And I remember the first time I actually documented my eating habits. It's very different when you're looking at it on paper versus when you're just thinking it in your head. Because seeing it as text in front of you, extremely palpable. You can go, oh, wait a minute. I got off the wagon a little more than I thought so last week. Plans can get away from us if... We don't really have some adherence to it. Like, why do diets work, Jake? Why do you think diets work? Do they? Right? You already know the answer, but diets don't work long term. But if ever a diet seems to work, especially short term, it's generally because one way or another, that has just simply given you more adherence to eating less calories, whatever that is, that diet is. And it tends to work until it doesn't. Yeah, you're just paying attention until you stop. But listen, if I have a long-term plan that I can stick to, then that's going to be the plan that I want to use. And that sounds so obvious, but when I talk to people who really want to make improvements, it's not so obvious to them until, again, they write down everything that they've been eating and they realize, geez, there's some obvious changes I should make here. And then it's also knowing your lifestyle and the structure you need around that lifestyle, which can be very important. Yeah. And if you end up choosing some kind of diet that makes you change every aspect of your lifestyle, you're just going to end up resenting it. That's right. And then you can start to recognize where you might have some difficulty in adherence and you realize that, geez, if I just took a little bit of planning and had some Tupperware where I just pack what I need for the day, you set maybe a day up in the week where you cook some foods that you put into the Tupperware, you have it ready to go. Love my Sundays. And that's where I will be honest. I work pretty much every day. I love what I do, but it kind of seems like it's never ending. I was just telling you before the podcast, mm -hmm. I don't really have a day off. So there's not a lot of time for me to do a lot of cooking. And my wife is also in that same boat with me. This is where the conversation goes to. If you want to eat healthy, you have a couple options, really. One, more time to prepare healthy foods, which will cost less. Or you have to essentially spend more money on foods that have been prepared for you, but they can be healthy. But you ever have lunch at Whole Foods? Uh, once. Right? Yeah, one time. They what they call it whole paycheck. Whole paycheck. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it's great, but that's not realistic for my lifestyle. I'll be honest, I don't spend a lot of time preparing foods. I used to do that. And then as I got busier, I started just basically spending more, but still eating the right foods for me just means now I spend a little bit more for that prepared, whole, real, healthy food option that I need. 
which is a great example of our different lifestyles. I do have usually at least one day and I do my food prep and I fill up the Tupperwares. I get my different kind of macros in each Tupperware and I usually just make lunches and dinners and I'm set for the week. So, of course, now we have to talk about principle number four, which is resistance training, Jake. This is where I think it gets tricky for me. Why, why does it get tricky for you, Jake? Well, because it's kind of counterintuitive, unless you've spent a lot of time in this industry, that you want to lose fat yet gain muscle. So the conundrum to me is if you're calorie deficient, you are eating fewer calories, how do you then gain muscle? Ah, the body is an amazing machine. So we kind of discount some things when we look at losing weight, we've been told that we're either basically going to pack on muscle and we're also going to pack on extra fat, or we're going to create a calorie deficit to where we're losing fat, but we're also losing muscle. You can get to the point where you are still putting on good muscle and losing fat. But it takes some planning. And again, if you are creating an extreme caloric deficit versus an adequate or an incremental caloric deficit, you're going to have better results because you're not starving your body. And there's actually enough mechanisms built into your body already where it will utilize the fuel that it has as resources so that you can get stronger and you can put on that extra muscle even though you're also losing fat. Okay, so let me just verify that it is not true that you can't do both at the same time. Not in my opinion, not in my experience. Okay, that's good to know. So don't go too extreme in your calorie deficit. Don't make any radical changes. And then you want to start slow and you want to move incrementally. You don't want to do any kind of extreme jumps. So for myself, Matt, if I were the average American dude and I was uh, eating cheeseburgers a little too often than I should be, what's a good example of how do I make an incremental change in my caloric intake? Yeah, so I talk about how if we get moving, we're probably going to start feeling better. So, of course adding a little bit at a time incrementally into your strength and your conditioning, that's going to help, but you can't exercise a bad diet away. So there's a couple extremes to this. If you have a slight caloric deficit of say 200 calories, let's see how you feel off of that. Are you losing strength and when you're losing strength, are you talking about big deficits in your strength? Or maybe there's just an adjustment period that's going on and you have to give yourself a little bit of time to get used to that deficit. But every few weeks or so, reevaluate and see where you're at. If you are taking some pounds off, it's going to be, again, incremental. But you're going to see progress more incrementally with your strength and conditioning and also with your calorie deficit. If you're wanting to lose a little bit more weight, then maybe after that, take another couple hundred calories off, for example. But also, you have to look in your strength training principles. How much volume are you doing? Is it right for you? Are you making the right adjustments? And are you doing enough frequency? So I think this is a good topic to talk about, Jake, volume and frequency in strength training. So do you know how many overall reps that we're trying to get each muscle group to be able to mechanically load, right? So strength training, mechanical loading. How often would we want to do that per week? How many overall sets or how many overall reps do we want to do? This is where I think people get a little bit confused. Well, yeah, consult any of the popular magazines and you'll get 10 different answers. Yeah. And he used to look at fitness magazines that would literally have 15 to 20 different exercises to do in a single session. And it would all be for the chest and triceps. Mm -hmm. And abs. Can't forget the abs. Right. So I will start with that. I think that it's better, especially for long-term results, that you have more total body training going on. If you're a beginner especially, definitely I would start with more total body training, which means that you're training everything 
in a session, but you're not doing all chest, they're all back, that sort of thing. It's leg day. It's leg day, right. Somebody who's been training a long time, it might make sense for them to now do more of that style of training because it's simply going to give them a variation and a progression into their training. But even at times, I will go to that style of training and I usually will stay in that for maybe six weeks, but then go back to more total body training again. But for the most part, I stick with total body integration, I call it. Sure. And I also go through those phases where I try to incorporate my entire body into most of my strength movements, but I do have my days when I'm like, okay, no, today I actually am doing triceps. Right. So we'll talk about how many reps we should do. I'm going to maybe get in 30 reps total per muscle group twice a week. And that's pretty optimal. You might even get in a third day a week. But in general, if somebody is doing total body integration work, then that's going to be enough to get a lot of bang for your buck. Is the juice worth the squeeze, right? At a certain point, we stop getting as much benefit from doing more. So that's where we want to start to focus a little bit more on frequency, but being more submaximal in our approach. So when we are, say, getting in five days of training a week, and each one of those days, we're separating body parts, mm -hmm. you're only really training that muscle group once a week. Is that as effective as training all your muscles two or three times a week? And with that type of format, you're probably getting really sore too. Yeah, right. You can really overdo it, especially if you don't have the experience. If you have a lot of experience and you've been in the gym, your gym age is years old, right? You're three, four years, you've been working on compound movements, on squats, on deadlifts, on push-ups, on pull-ups, on these things, and you've been doing this for, for a few years, then yeah, sure, maybe doing what I kind of refer to as separation training, where I'm going to hit the chest more and I'm going to do that, that maybe can be beneficial for you. But again, it's because it's focusing a little bit more on something you haven't been doing and you can handle that overload. But when you're talking about frequency, you're better off training the whole body two or three times a week. Obviously, you're also going to burn more calories there too than when you're just training, say, the chest. You're not burning a ton of calories doing that. Now, there are some things that I will train more frequently though, and even daily. Postural muscles, a good way to think of this is look in the mirror, and I've talked about this before, the muscles you can't see are generally the postural muscles that you want to focus on a little bit more often. And those tend to be auxiliary movements, or sometimes we refer to accessory strength. I say access your strength, accessory strength. So doing things like face pull-aparts, for example, for your upper back strength to help your posture. Those movements can be done daily, and especially because you tend to just go with a little bit lighter weight and higher reps. I might do say 12 to 20 reps and I'm going to focus a little bit more on controlled, triphasic, slow positions. I'm not going to do something like a squat every day though. So I want to train the way that my body can utilize, respond, recover, repair from that training. And if I'm constantly working on my postural muscles, that's going to help me every day. But I just don't train to the point where those muscles are super sore. Yeah, I don't know if those are the ones that you want to be sore. Those muscles, you can feel like, oh, yeah, I worked them, mm -hmm. you know, and that's actually a good thing because they're helping to keep maintain your posture and you actually want to feel those muscles activated. So like I say, the muscles you can't see in the mirror, that's the ones we tend to work a little bit more on activation, on stability, things like that. So it's a good thing. Another training progression I might use would be to go a little bit heavier in my weight now. And instead of going to 10 reps, I might say go to six reps, but I'm going heavier each set. 
but I might do, say, five sets of six reps. So that's still going to give me 30 total reps. But in general, I'm going to kind of cap off my volume at about 30 reps there. And that's an interesting tidbit because you're still getting the same workload. Your time under tension isn't any different, but you're not going to be overwhelmed. Yeah, well, time under tension, that's another misunderstood topic. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about that. You walk into most gyms and you're going to see somebody do 10 reps in about 15 seconds. Pretty quick. Now, is that a bad thing? Well, if they are training for power, if they're training for a little bit more for their speed development and they have a specific reason to do that, then absolutely that tempo should be pretty fast. But in general, the eccentric phase, now that is when you're lengthening under load. So let's just take that squat pattern, for example, when you are coming down towards the ground, right? In that squat, you're in that eccentric phase. Yeah, the negative. The negative, and that should be done slower. I tend to use breathing patterns a lot of times where I'm breathing in on my way down and I'll go for an eight count breathing in, getting my sides wide so I am helping to reinforce and protect my spine. But when I come back up out of the hole, I want to go faster. And so I'm going to breathe out, but this is going to be more explosive in the positive or the concentric pattern. So in general, if I'm forced to pick one, I will say, go slower on your way down, like an eight count. Then I want you to come out of the hole faster. And that's when you work more on your speed and the tempo on the concentric effort. Now, triphasic work also includes something that we refer to as isometric. And isometrics can be done very different ways. But in general, what I tend to do is I will go with lighter weight and I will focus more on what I call a sticking point. So where is the hardest point in the movement? Now get a lighter weight, maybe say 30% to 50% of what you would normally use and breathe in that position at that sticking point and do a yielding isometric, which means that you are struggling to hold that position, but you can breathe in that position because if you can't breathe in that position, you don't own that position. And so that's where the isometrics can really come into play. And in that kind of phase, I will tend to go a little bit slower, even in the concentric, because when you come out of the hole and you've been holding that yielding isometric pattern, you're going to have a tough time getting back up. So Mm -hmm. you want to control that and go a little slower in that case, back into your stand up position. But in a lot of positions that we work on, we don't even do the concentric there. So for example, if I'm doing a yielding isometric dumbbell row, I'm going to hold my dumbbells all the way towards my hip pockets with my elbows pulled in. I'm going to hold that position with good central core connection. That's important. And I'm going to hold that for maybe 30 to 60 seconds. When I'm done with that 60 seconds and that weight, again, might only be, say, 30% of what I can lift maximally, I'm just going to go ahead and let the weights row down to the ground. And so now I've really just focused on that isometric. So when you are working on the three different phases of isometric, concentric, eccentric, you want to have a purpose to each phase, each thing you're doing. When you start working on a lot more power, of course, that's all more concentrically based. So throwing a med ball, for example, and you're trying to increase your speed, that's a good way to just invigorate and wake up the nervous system and get going. Or to, say, take a sled and sprint with that sled, that's another way where you're just really focused on the concentric action. So that's all good. But 
when that athlete is trying to sharpen up and get faster in those positions, there's the purpose for that because they are trying to sharpen their speed potential. They are increasing their mass specific force when they're doing, say, a deadlift and they are working on pushing their feet into the ground while they're pulling that bar up faster concentrically. But if that bar is stuck in the middle or stops traveling at a good rate, then that's really no longer something that's going to increase mass-specific force, for example. For general training purposes, getting back to what most people are trying to do, when your tempo is fast, period, and you're doing faster eccentric, faster concentric, there's probably no isometric in there, and you're just kind of ripping through these reps, you don't have enough time under tension to get the results you're looking for. In general, you want a set to take you longer than 30 seconds to do. That's kind of the minimal time. So if you're doing 10 reps, let's say, which six to 12 reps, by the way, is the most common reps that we're gonna be looking at in more hypertrophy training for general purpose training. Strength and muscle building phase. Six to 12 is a great range because as you go up to 12, you're going to obviously get a little bit more metabolic. When you go closer to six reps and you're going heavier, you're stressing the muscles more. And so this is now a little bit more of an overload. Can you get an overload if you are doing reps in, let's say, 30 seconds or less, generally speaking, you're not going to get the results you're looking for. So that means that in 10 reps, if you're doing your reps, say, maybe six to even eight seconds per rep, you're going to get more out of that for that purpose. If you're doing six reps but heavier, yeah, you're not going to generally have as much time under tension, but because your loading is so much more than it what it was at, say, 12 reps, you're going to get a response you want there that's going to help you towards getting stronger towards those goals. So this is an interesting one, but not everybody should be lifting heavy, for example. There are plenty of people out there that once they start lifting heavy, either they haven't quite mastered the mechanics long enough or you know just their history do they have injuries do they have things going on where they don't really want to take risk versus reward they don't really want to get into heavy heavy lifting and that might just be for certain areas like in a deadlift for example so that's where making those decisions about well what's right for me is this right for my mechanics is this right for considering my history where am i at so I'll take myself as an example. Last year, as you know, I fell through the roof. Ah, uh, yes. You were playing around at the roof. And so I had a torn meniscus in my left knee. And obviously that's something I wanted to address. So I am happy to say a year later, I have regained all my strength, but I did have to change some things that was doing in my strength training. So can I get away with doing the heavier squat work that I might've been doing before? Now that's not going to work as well for me. So I'm going to lighten the weight up a little bit. I'm going to work a little bit more on a Bulgarian split squat, for example. So that's where my right leg might be back on a bench. My foot's on the bench. My left leg is forward. And then I'm essentially getting a single leg squat, but I can take some additional resistance with dumbbells in my hands. I'm gonna work more triphasically. I'm gonna work a little bit slower to get that response. And I'm probably gonna hit my numbers a little bit higher. So will I go back into doing weight that's quite as heavy for me as I was doing before I tore my meniscus? Well, risk versus reward, I'm probably going to just stick with a little bit higher reps 
and just keep very good intention on how I'm doing those reps. And I'm getting just as strong as I would have gotten before by doing heavier weight, but less reps. So that's an example of how you can change your patterns according to your needs and your history. Yeah, that's a great example of the difference, the nuances between how many reps you're doing versus your time under tension. Thanks for that, Matt. So if someone is trying to lose fat specifically, how does strength training play a part in that? First of all, there is no spot reduction. There's no specific way that you're going to lose body fat by, say, doing more crunches. Yeah, right? crunches right. to get rid of belly fat doesn't work. As long as we understand that the first place that you tend to gain the weight is probably the last place that you're going to notice that you lose the weight. But it's not because you're not losing fat. It's just that this is now how your body is set up as opposed to somebody else's. Men tend to lose belly fat last as opposed to women who have more, for example, estrogen, and they tend to have more fat that's displaced throughout their body. So we just have to understand sometimes it seems like we're not losing belly fat, but we actually are losing do you just have more of it there? So Jake, you have to just stick with the plan and keep kind of edging away that extra fat until it's optimal for you. The main principles that you can take away from strength training is A, get in total body plans frequently two to three days a week. Preferably, I would say do like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, something like that. Just make sure that you are not overdoing it in any one area. So if you do want to, say, get a little bit stronger with your upper body, say your push-ups are just atrocious and you want to focus on more on push-ups, Great, but just don't turn it into a chest day only. You can emphasize more push-ups in that day, but still hit total body integration. So, Matt, total body integration, when you're emphasizing a day when you're doing push-ups, does that mean that you're doing things like squats? Are you doing pulls? Are you doing rows? Yeah, so you can just follow this simple pattern. Make sure that in that day, you are doing some kind of a push, right? So a push-up would be okay to do. You're doing some kind of a pull, so maybe a row. TRX rows are great, anything like that. Make sure you're doing some sort of a level change. So lunges are great to do, especially though if you have understood how your body can get into these various positions effectively. So lunges are great, but this is just an example of a level change. It doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work for you, but and, I'll just use that in this case. And a level change is where like your line of sight goes up and down along the wall? Yeah, essentially, okay. right. So you're just taking your center of mass and you're going lower and you're going back up. Right? Got it. You want to also include some sort of rotation. So understand that your body is set up in slings, the anterior oblique sling, the posterior oblique sling. But you just want to think, okay, my right shoulder is connected to my left hip. You also want to have some sort of a carry in that training day as well. So farmer's walks are pretty well known these days, but that's just where you would grab a couple of dumbbells, for example, or kettlebells. You want to make sure that you have a good grip on them, good deep grip. And now you are really focused on your central core connection, for example. So your ribs are pulling down towards your hips and your hips are pulling towards your ribs, right? So you're connecting your ribs and your hips. Then you're thinking a little bit more about how you are setting your spine, neutral spine, while you walk so that you don't shift back and forth or you don't spill your spine, in other words. And that's how a farmer's walk can really be maybe the best core movement that you could do. Talk about total body. Right. And now let's not forget hip extensions. There's got to be some sort of hip extension in your movement patterns. But a lot of times when it comes to hip extension work, people just think deadlifts 
And yes, that's a great pattern to do. But if we are not ready to do that in a loaded pattern, we can always start off on the ground with doing something like glute extensions, right? Hip thrusters, froggers, things like this. The common mistake I see though, is that again, remember that core connection principle that you want to pull your ribs down. Don't let your ribs flare out and make sure you are connecting your ribs to your hips. So if you are in a good core connection, you're not arching at your spine. You're not spilling your spine, your lower back should not hurt when you're trying to do hip extensions. Oftentimes it hurts because we're actually overextending. So that's an important principle to learn. And I always start my athletes with some sort of hip extension focused on those principles because when they do get into a deadlift or a squat, and if they are overextending, we're going to have back pain real quick. So we want to understand that core connection principle pretty well before we start loading heavier. This is all just an example about how we can put a good training session together. But say that one day you're going to emphasize more of those push-ups that you want to work on. You can maybe throw in a couple additional movements there so that you're getting a little bit stronger in one area, but you're still working the total body. Another day, you might focus more on those hip extensions. So now I just emphasized hip girdle more than shoulder girdle. And then on a third day, I might do a little bit more curl-ups, for example. So now I'm working more on my abs and my obliques, but I'm not a big fan of just doing abs and obliques one day and just doing hip girdle another day, in other words, legs, and just upper body another day. Not especially for the principles we're talking about here of frequency and getting the body to respond to the demands frequently, but this is a great way that you can train smart, but not overdo it in any one body part. It's hard to overdo it when you are training the entire body each day, especially when you're maybe spacing those days out. So you're doing a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or say a Monday, Thursday, if you're doing two days. So don't forget two days is great. Three days, maybe that is a progression. Maybe that's something you're going to work towards but you don't necessarily have to get in, I think, more than a few days. If you're going to throw in a fourth day, that is where I usually will give accessory movements and we will focus more on your weak points. And again, that tends to be more postural type of movements where we're going to do higher reps, lighter weight. I even consider that to be a decompression day. It's stability days for me that I do on those fourth, fifth days. Right. All right. So hopefully people won't get as sore as they would versus a chest, leg, arm, shoulder day. But have you seen people who do manage to overdo it even when they spread it out like these moves? Oh, yeah. Okay. There's always those overachievers. Yeah. Yeah. The guy with the ego like me. Yeah. And you just think, okay, if I put in even more here, I'm, I'll get even better results. Mm -hmm. So you, you can overdo it even with total body integration days. I like to limit your training time to 40 minutes. Now, this doesn't include when you're doing your workups. It doesn't include when you're doing your protocol. But when you actually start your strength training, I go for about 40 minutes total. So you don't want to really go much past that, in my opinion. You're going to get much better recovery because you have done submaximal work and I know that's a concept. Some people, it's hard to get that, that they think, okay, I do my workouts. I do an hour and a half. Well, that's the whole problem. You're doing a workout now. You're not doing a training plan. So this is the difference between training plans and being smart and actually going submaximally. You've gotten enough stimulus to create a response for your body to get stronger. You want to leave the gym feeling better than when you walked in. That whole idea that you just have to train to exhaustion for it to be any good, 
man, you now turned it into a competition. So when I go all out, it better be in a race. It better be in a competition. And sure, those days can test my ability to really push myself. But then, man, if I run a marathon, I'm going to take 26 days, a day for each mile to recover and it's going to completely exhaust my system and drain me out. So sure, I mean, that has its place, but in my opinion, not in the gym. What you're doing in the gym is supposed to support these other goals. So you wanna walk out feeling better than when you came in. You wanna be able to come back into the gym and put in a good, another effective dose. So we want the minimum dose with the most effective response. That's where my ego really gets me is where I don't cut the workout, the training session short when I should not even cut it short, but I always end up doing more. I was going to say, see that mentality just came out in you, right? You're not cutting it short. You're actually doing the right amount. That's not cutting it short, but that's the way we've been taught. And for years I did these marathon training set, well, workouts at that Mm -hmm. time. And couldn't understand why I wasn't getting as strong as other people. And I realized that, geez, my mentality, especially coming from being an endurance athlete, everything was more, everything was more volume. And I figured I had to spend a ton of volume in the gym to get those results, but I actually wasn't getting very strong. And so I ended up learning the hard way that I had to limit that time. 20 minutes is going to be a pretty effective dose for you. So 20 to even 40 minutes, sometimes with my athletes, I will actually write in their programs that they're doing 20 to 40 minutes. That's the part of this podcast I really hope people take home with them, and myself included, because I know that to be the case, and yet I am so conditioned to just max out and do more and put all of my energy into a single workout And I know it's not working because the next day, guess what? I don't want to get up at 4.30 in the morning and go because I can hardly move. Yeah, so athletes that train with more frequency, they miss less training because they're not sick and they're not injured. They haven't overreached. Those are the athletes that get the best results. Just statistically speaking, If I have an athlete that has missed less training due to those factors, they are the athletes that are thriving. All right, Matt. So that's four. What about number five on this list? If we are going back to our goal of losing fat, potentially gaining muscle, like that's my personal goal, what else can we do? Let's say I'm going three days a week inside the gym doing my strength work. What else can I be doing? Yeah, so number five is further exercise for deficit. Let's be clear here. First of all, do you need to do conditioning work to lose fat? I think the conception is yes. But really, in reality, it's no. There there are plenty of people out there who don't really do that type of conditioning, and they're very lean. Obviously, they have a pretty clean nutrition plan and they're pretty on it, right? They have a high adherence, but those people oftentimes do conditioning still in the gym. You can do kettlebell swings, right? You can do burpees. You can do any kind of compound type of movements where you're emphasizing probably level changes, but you're also just maybe cutting down recovery time. So you're doing some Tabata sets or, and you're turning this into more of a conditioning day, even though technically you're doing mechanical loading still. There's that. You don't have to necessarily go out there and do a quote unquote run, or you don't have to do traditional conditioning where you're on that treadmill for you know two hours. But I don't personally like to hit the weights every day. And I find that we can tend to have maybe more issues if we're just always with the weights. But I think there's just a burnout to that too. I want to be able to have maybe two or three days a week where I'm really focused on getting better with that mechanical loading, but I want to look forward to that. And then on the other days, I want to look forward to doing something 
in my opinion, outside. I'd rather be outside doing my conditioning. What about you? Absolutely. When you get that fresh air, that makes such a difference to me. So what's the best way, Jake, to be able to shed that fat off when it comes to conditioning, in your opinion? What, what do you think? I do the hit style. Okay. The, or some kind of interval. So what? explain what HIT so is. So HIT stands for high intensity interval training. And that's where you usually have a circuit of maybe several different moves. But the point is your work to rest ratio is higher for your work. All right. So give me an example of a HIT workout for you. Sure. So let's take medicine ball slams for 30 seconds against a wall. 15 seconds of rest followed by 30 seconds of burpees. Okay. So you had 15 seconds of rest followed by 30 seconds of burpees, correct? Yes. Okay. So I have to, just being in this industry, I have to speak up here, but I know that is the common conception about high-intensity interval training, Mm -hmm. but technically you can't do high-intensity interval training that way. So Tabata style of circuits where you're going hard for 20 seconds Mm -hmm. and you're recovering for 10 seconds and you're going hard for 20 seconds again. Well, that isn't high intensity. That's impossible to do that for high intensity work. And I'm just clarifying this for people out there listening it. You look at a sprinter, for example, on the track, and that sprinter is going at a very high intensity for, say, 60 meters, right? Mm -hmm. 6.5 seconds is roughly the amount of time that you can maintain true high intensity, maybe 10 to 12 seconds if you're well-trained, okay? Then you have to have about seven parts rest minimum, in my opinion, before you can go high intensity again. Mm Mm-hmm. So this all depends on the athlete and their needs, but whatever that high intensity period is, you're essentially taking a lot of rest time in between. Gotcha. So that's true hit training. If I am now going more into steady state stamina, maybe I'll have short recovery periods and that's a different thing. Let's now go to more of your list training, right? So that's your low intensity work. That's categorized with steady state in it. I just think low intensity, then steady state, like we just talked about, then high intensity. So those are the three main categories to me. So low intensity work, that is actually really good for burning fat. So you're doing something very low stress. So let's just take the basic example, walking. Walking is going to be very low stress. It's your heart rate's gonna be very low, especially if I like to use a breathing pattern in this so that I make sure that my athletes aren't going too fast in this type of effort, but they might be say breathing in for five steps through their nose and then breathing out for four steps through their nose. If they have to open up their mouth, they're probably starting to work a little bit too hard. So that would be truly low intensity type of work. Walking or low intensity work like this is actually a recovery for your body. And you're actually able to do this more often, obviously, because it's going to help you get ready for the next quality day. Walking every morning is very doable. And I'd argue that most people, including even elite athletes, need to do that more. So 20, 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, if you have the time, walking in the morning, you can't really overdo that. You're recovering. So that's one of the few things that you're actually going to recover more. You're going to be less acidic. You're going to be more capable of putting in a better quality workout because you're doing something low intensity every day. So back to your question, steady state, does that burn fat? Let me switch this up for you, Jake. Hmm. Which one would you choose? It would be between low and steady. Okay, low and steady. Yeah. Okay, so high intensity interval training has become very popular. Yes, I see it everywhere I go. And again, I've already addressed the reasons why it doesn't work for most people because they're not actually doing high intensity interval training. They're actually doing a lot of really tough steady state, Mm -hmm. more threshold work, which is very taxing on Mm -hmm. the body. So high intensity interval training is really tough on the nervous system and that should be done sparingly as well, but that's a different stress than the steady state stamina. 
the low intensity work you can do more frequently. In fact, you can recover better, like I mentioned before. So the answer to me, it's the one you haven't been doing enough of, right? So if somebody is just walking easy every day, but they've been doing that for a year and they haven't introduced anything more stressful, now let's just assume that they can, though. They don't have any heart conditions. Right. They don't have any reason why they... Yeah, be careful if you're trying something new. Right. Yes. Then most likely the plateau is going to come because you just haven't created some sort of a progression or a need for your body to become more efficient at something. So you want to go more to even steady state work or high intensity interval work. I like a nonlinear approach where I'm using all three, but there's going to be maybe more of an emphasis on one on a particular day. And so I might get in, say, a high-intensity interval session, maybe once every seven to 10 days, something like that. I might get in some steady-state work that's going to be a couple times, a couple quality training days, something like that, in seven to 10 days. And then, again, the low-intensity work, I think I could do that daily, keeping in mind that about once out of every 10 days, I'm actually going to go long and low intensity. So a long, easy run, for example. So I'm not going to do too much frequency with the high intensity. I'm not going to do too much frequency with the steady state. If anything, I'm going to add more frequency to the low intensity work so I can recover better, but I'm not going to go long on those too often either. Okay. Well, Matt, the way you're describing this, I need to totally rethink high intensity interval training. Yeah, I want to finish this off with your posture, though. So we, mm -hmm. we've been talking a lot today about your central core connection. Hang on, let me uh, sit up here. <clears throat> right. It's very important to me that my athletes can maintain good posture no matter what we're doing. This is just an example. I have been focusing a lot more on my posture when I'm running because I'm going to be running a marathon. And technically, I'm not built as well for a marathon as I would be for a 5K, for example. But I have my reason for doing this marathon. So in doing this, the best thing I can focus on is what is my posture like? I want to have that central core connection while I run. If I am running for three hours, so I want to be able to have the right core connection so that it supports my posture while I'm running, right, Jake? Right. Well, I have to be humble enough to realize that I have trouble holding that posture long enough. And so it doesn't really matter if I'm talking about a marathon that's going to take me three hours or if it's going to take me five hours. The real question is, can I hold my posture throughout that duration? Because if I can't, then I'm probably going to do some damage that I don't want. Long-term damage, that's going to keep me from being able to run when I'm 70. So for me, I've been running a long time. So I have to run for at least 30 minutes total to get sort of the conditioning benefit I want. But that doesn't mean that I can't stop during my run. So if I do eight minutes of running and two minutes of walking or some sort of dynamic movement, it's also giving me a chance to reset my focus for the next eight minutes. Or I might even say cut it down to four minutes and then do one minute of dynamic movement. That has allowed me to be able to hold my posture longer because I'm resetting and I'm refocusing every time I'm going out for an easy run. So without doing anything else, just focusing on that for a couple weeks, I went back and I sort of tested myself. I did eight miles easy first. And in that eight miles, I was able to hold my posture much better, being more aware of what I was doing. And I didn't feel as fatigued in those eight miles as I normally would because I was essentially working a little bit too hard before. Now I have a 6.2 mile sort of test to do. So this is at marathon pace I'm gonna to try to hit, okay? Under some pre-fatigue. And in doing that, I was running almost 20 seconds faster per mile 
than I had run in the last quality run that I had done, which was three weeks before. That's a big difference. Way to go, man. Yeah, but here's the thing. It reminds me that we all need to work on the basics more. We all need to focus more on our foundation. If our mechanics are sound, if we can hold our posture, and that's in lifting, that's in sprinting, that's in sitting at your desk, if you can hold your posture, you're going to have better results. And that is a key takeaway, I think. Let's always remember that there's no courage in defeated mechanics. And that is Bobby McGee's quote. I have been living by it ever since I have been a coach myself, but he can't say it any better than that. So really learning the proper way to lift learning the proper way to run or to cycle or to hike or to do any movement pattern, that's crucial. Holding your proper posture, central core connection, that is so valuable for your long-term success. So let's just finish this off with, you talked originally about losing belly fat. Well, if you are holding on to these proper postural positions we're talking about, you're working through this with good mechanics, Jake, you're going to be able to have a higher, more consistent frequency over a year, two years, three years, 10 years. That is what produces the long-term results where you can be a stud in your seventies. I'm in it for the long haul. And Les Nesbitt's coming up on one of our interviews soon. And what this guy can do at 73 is absolutely amazing, but it's all based off of these principles. He's been with me for 17 years, and I would argue that he is stronger than he was 17 years ago, and he's more functional, and he's healthier. So age is just a number, Let's just not grind ourselves into the ground going after these short-term goals and not paying attention to how we're doing it, not paying attention to the details that really do matter for that long-term success, Jake. And that's a training plan. That's an energy system development plan as opposed to working out until you can't anymore because you've ground out your knees. You're just the person who just goes to the gym. Right. So you listening to this while you're driving in your car, watch your posture, sit up straight and get back to the basics and let us know how it goes. Send us an email, pendolaproject at gmail.com. Yeah, man. And the Pendola Project is on Facebook. Give us a like there. And on Instagram as well. And if you're listening on a podcast app, consider writing a review. It really helps new people find the show share it around get the information out to more ears we appreciate it and thank you for listening remember every day not just today is your chance to be just a little bit better thanks for listening